0: This is In Front of Our Eyes.
1: He's conscious, and then you see that he isn't.
2: Sir, what is your current role?
1: My current role is chief of the Minneapolis Police Department. And and doctor, is there another name for death by oxygen deficiency? Asphyxia. That's the moment the life goes out of his body.
0: I'm Nina Moyni, and this is our weekend recap of the murder trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. As the prosecution presented the heart of its case this week, current and former police officers testified that Chauvin violated his training by kneeling on George Floyd, who was handcuffed much longer than necessary. We'll hear more about that later. The last witness of the week was probably the most anticipated. Dr. Andrew Baker is the Hennepin County medical examiner who determined the manner of Floyd's death, homicide, that is, death caused by another. And the cause? Cardiopulmonary arrest as his neck was compressed. Baker also said heart problems and drug use were factors in Floyd's death. The forensic pathologist said Floyd had an enlarged heart, hardened arteries, and fentanyl and methamphetamine in his system.
1: It was the stress of that interaction that tipped him over the edge, given his underlying heart disease and his toxicological status.
0: Chauvin's defense attorney argued that poor health and drug use were more to blame for Floyd's death rather than the force used. Under further questioning by prosecutor Jerry Blackwell, Baker stood by his finding of homicide.
2: And in terms of manner of death, you found then, and do you stand by today, that the manner of death for Mr. Floyd was, as you would call it, homicide?
1: Yes, I would still classify it as a homicide today.
2: Thank you, Dr. Baker. A further question?
0: A pulmonologist testified earlier in the day that even a healthy person would have died if they'd been pinned down in the same way. As they anticipated that Chauvin's attorney would focus on exactly how Floyd died, prosecutors called expert witnesses who said Floyd died from a lack of oxygen. My colleague Brant Williams was among the reporters inside the courtroom this week. He's here with me now. Hi, Brant. Hi, Nina. So, Brant, up until now, we've heard a lot of testimony about police training, use of force. But how critical is this medical testimony this week?
2: Well, the medical testimony is is critical for a couple different reasons. As you'll remember, during the opening statements, it seemed like many months ago, mm-hmm. but it was just uh, last week or so, was the, the medical experts were going to play a major part of the prosecution's case because they want to show that the actions that Derek Chauvin took were primarily responsible for George Floyd's death. Good morning, Your Honor, Counsel, ladies and gentlemen. We'll call our first witness this morning, Dr. Martin Tobin. So we heard from this week a pulmonologist who said basically Floyd died from a low level of oxygen. He said that caused damage to his brain. It also caused his heart to develop um, a condition like arrhythmia and then eventually stop. And when he was being questioned uh, by the state, Dr. Tobin said the reason why George Floyd's oxygen got so low was because of the pressure applied to him by Derek Chauvin and by some of the other officers as well, pushing him down, pushing his uh, body into the pavement, not allowing George Floyd to breathe. With each breath,
1: he has to try and fight against the street. He has to try and fight with the small volumes that he has. And then he has to try and lift up the officer's knee with each breath. And also remember, he has to try and also lift up the effect of the other officer pumping in his arm with the handcuffed arm. They're pushing it in into his chest. So he has to make all these efforts to try and breathe against that.
0: And one of the big moments this week did come early on, on Monday. That's when the current chief of the Minneapolis police, Madeira Ardondo, testified. Was that a surprise that he took the stand against one of his former officers?
2: No, it was not a surprise, but it's still significant, uh, obviously, to jurors to them to see the head of the Minneapolis Police Department get on the witness stand and say that one of his now former officers acted in a way that was not only not according to the type of training and ethics and values that the department represents, but that he basically equated it to murder. Now, it was not a surprise because uh, Arradondo last year had actually released a statement saying that much, that he felt like Derek Chauvin's actions were not justified at all, and he equated that to murder. Um, Arredondo has also testified um, during the—there was a, another trial a few years back of then-officer Muhammad Noor, who was accused of shooting and killing uh, Justine Ruschek, and he testified at that trial as well. So uh, Arredondo has kind of established uh, a reputation for if he feels like his officers uh, did something wrong, he'll speak out about it.
0: What do you make of all these officers and the chief taking the stand and essentially testifying against Chauvin? There has been some criticism from community activists that the chief is trying to maybe save face for the department, but there aren't really significant changes happening within the department related to use of force and just training and the culture.
2: Yes. And we've been hearing, um, as you, I'm sure you've heard the voices as well, who have said, basically, that even if Chauvin is convicted, that doesn't necessarily let the Minneapolis Police Department off the hook. Uh, They are still going to push for reforms to the police department. There's still a push to basically uh, eliminate the police department from the city's charter and replace it with a new agency. There's a citizen petition going around. There's also a city council-led action that is being heard by the Charter Commission right now. So these Actions are still going to go forward, regardless of what the jury decides in the case of Derek Chauvin.
0: Another theme that comes up when defense attorney Eric Nelson, when it's his turn, is he talks about the impact of the bystanders, the witnesses, and the people gathered at 38th in Chicago, talking about how they became hostile toward Derek Chauvin and to the other officers and created a threatening environment. What have you heard the experts on the stand say? Have you heard them say that the crowd? was reasonably threatening?
2: Or what have you heard there? So you're right. Um, Eric Nelson, as part of his defense strategy, is putting out there that the actions that Derek Chauvin took were uh, part of how officers are trained to react and and keep their eyes on uh, crowds who may gather as they're uh, arresting somebody or using force on somebody. And he's, he's made a point to say that sometimes officers have to use force and that it's, it may look bad, um, but it's it's certainly allowable. He used the term lawful, but awful. Um, in terms of rendering aid to George Floyd right at the time and taking the handcuffs off of him so they could perform CPR, Nelson is trying to put out there that that might be a reason why the officers didn't do that, because they felt like the, the crowd was getting hostile. Now, some of the expert witnesses who testified pointed to that officers are trained to deal with crowds and in trained to look and see if someone is actually um, becoming violent. And, and granted, there were some people who used some strong language in the crowd, one of them being Donald Williams, the MMA fighter. But uh, he did not jump forward onto any of the officers. He, he stepped in the street, and then when he was told to step back, he stepped back. So I think that's what some of these uh, state witnesses were trying to point out, was that while some of the people in the crowd were clearly upset, Uh, that they didn't necessarily pose a direct, immediate threat to the officers. Now, Nelson also, during the cross-examination of some of the eyewitnesses who were at the scene, uh, asked some of them if they could see on the other side of the police squad car, partially blocking their view, that there were other people gathering behind the officers, And that seemed to me as a a tactic by Nelson to kind of suggest that there were other threats that the officers were facing that didn't show up on the bystander video. And
0: it's interesting that you mentioned that because during the opening statements from the prosecution, they said something to the jurors like that they can believe their eyes, believe what was in front of them. It seems the defense strategy is to tell the jurors, don't believe what you see. There's more to the story. There's more that you don't know about. Really kind of questioning everything from where Chauvin's knee actually was to what Floyd's saying in some of the videos and what it sounds like he's saying related to taking drugs. So what's the intended impact there on the jurors? And and do you foresee that being successful?
2: Well, as you point out that Eric Nelson is, is putting inserting some doubt into the minds of jurors, especially when it comes to uh, there were the, the still images that he presented during some of the cross-examination taken from one of the officer's body cameras to try to show that there were times when Derek Chauvin's knee appeared to be not across George Floyd's neck, but at the base of his neck with his the rest of his leg, lower leg. Between George Floyd's shoulder blades, which is something that um, police officers are trained to do in regular uh, takedowns and handcuffing of somebody behind the back. Um, It's a temporary position, but it's something that Eric Nelson tries to point out is something that officers are actually trained to do.
0: And so there are these different themes, right? Training, use of force, uh, the medical issues that were going on. And you were one of few reporters allowed in the courtroom this week because of COVID-19 restrictions. I wondered, what is your gauge of how jurors are feeling? There's a lot being thrown at them and, you know, witness after witness, some of them testifying to very similar aspects of this trial. Could you see how their responses were that day? Does it feel like they're engaged or following along? What was it like inside the courtroom?
2: Well, the day that I was in the courtroom uh, featured uh, several forensic scientists, and they presented evidence that's kind of boilerplate for uh, these types of criminal cases, which can include a lot of repetitive testimony and there's uh, terminology that they use, which can get a little, um, can get a little dense at times. So there were times when you could tell jurors were getting a bit distracted. They were having a hard time focusing and they were um, a few of them I saw kind of not off. So that's something that attorneys, I think, are going to have to pay attention to as they go forward um, with the type of uh, witnesses they provide. And so, as we expect the defense to begin calling
0: their witnesses next week, what are you going to be watching for? Because all of this medical testimony certainly isn't easy to follow either.
2: True, and that's always one of the hazards of presenting a case in in this nature. I've I've seen it before in other murder cases that I've covered. These, I'm sure, these jurors after they're done with this are going to know a lot more about positional asphyxiation and um, all these other terms that they've maybe have never heard before, but they're going to be very aware of them going forward.
0: And so will everybody else who's been watching the trial. Brant Williams, thank you so much for your reporting. You're welcome, Dina. At the end of a dreary week in Minneapolis, the trial was playing on a TV mounted to the wall inside of Cup Foods, the convenience store in South Minneapolis where a cashier called 911 to report the use of a possible counterfeit $20 bill. That brought the officers who later pinned George Floyd down,
1: well definitely there's been some um, heavy emotions involved.
0: One of the owners, Mahmoud Abu Mayali, says his store's TV is tuned to the murder trial on purpose.
1: It's been a struggle and it's been a challenge, and we just want to you know be able to follow along.
0: Abu Mayali looked weary at first to see another reporter in his store but took a few minutes to talk. He's still not used to the nonstop attention his corner store has gotten over the past year.
1: Yeah, the first week when the trial began, when they had our store, we had a lot of solicitation calls. We were getting over 100 calls a day to the point where we had to stop answering the phone. Um, This week, the second week, it got better because they stopped showing our store on the trial. And we got many letters in the mail for Christopher for his testimony
0: he says they've been mostly positive messages while i was there abu mayali got another letter delivered for that cashier
1: dear christopher martin i heard part of your testimony on the radio this week and it was and I read more of it in the newspaper and felt the strong need to reach out to you I find myself thinking about be Martin
0: who's 19 testified earlier in the trial about how he felt guilty for calling the police that evening in May after he had accepted the questionable bill he's one of many witnesses who said on the stand their lives were forever changed by watching Floyd die as the situation
1: unwound into absolute devastation um, and they gave a $20 donation.
0: Abu Mayali put the letter in a stack to give to Martin. He says it's been an emotional time for everyone in the area around what is now known as George Floyd Square, the site of protests that activists have blocked off as a space to remember Floyd and call for justice for people killed by police. When the trial started,
1: um, there was a lot of anticipation of possible violence or rioting or protesting, and it was actually very quiet. Um, A lot of peaceful visitors Um, Customers that would come in the store and watch the trial with us. And it's been very um, overall quiet and peaceful.
0: And that's the way Abu Mayali hopes the atmosphere remains in the city in the coming weeks. This episode was produced by Megan Burks, Brita Green, and Nancy Liebens. Reporting by Brant Williams, Reham Fisher, Matt Sepik, and John Collins. Laura Yuan edits our coverage. Nancy Yang, Paul Tosto, and Michael Olson are our digital editors. We had technical help from Alexander Simpson. Our theme music is by Gary Meister. Thanks for listening. I'm Nina Moyni.